Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Today we have our first returning guest, Dr. Amy Finkelstein, economics professor at MIT, co-author of today's subject, the book, We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare, but also co-author of the subject of an interview from earlier this year, Risky Business, Why Insurance Markets Fail, and What to Do About It. Amy and her co-authors are experts in insurance generally and health insurance specifically. I mention that because in the interview, I rave about this textbook example of lateral thinking and blank page creativity, which most often get generated from outside the box. What I meant by that was Amy hasn't worked in the healthcare industry for 20 years or worked in public policy in Washington, D.C. So from that perspective, I suggest she has an outsider's advantage. The title undersells what the book is offering, which is a blueprint for, I believe, the best way to run healthcare in America, which is universal coverage with free basic coverage for all. That's a tease. There's much more to it and evidence from around the world, including not just countries from Europe to the UK and Norway to Singapore and Australia, but also states like Massachusetts and Oregon to support the author's research. And I know I always say this, but in this case, it's especially true because of the enormity of the subject matter, but you really do have to read the book. We could barely scratch the surface in an hour, and I don't know that I knew the subject well enough to do a great job. With that said, the most elegant solutions are often the simplest, and by that measure, Amy and company have crushed it again. At the end of the day, the solutions, the final product, if we start from scratch, this is amazingly straightforward. Other than me screwing up the term supplemental insurance uh, by saying premium a couple of times, it's a clean interview thanks to Amy's mastery of the subject. If you can overlook my error and apologies for any confusion that causes, you're going to leave the interview miles ahead of your friends and family and work associates on the subject. But don't be greedy. Share the interview with all of them. Now, here's the interview. Welcome and good morning. Thanks for having me. We, we spoke once before. For listeners that missed it, they should go back and listen to, after listening to this interview, read your prior book, Risky Business, Why Insurance Markets Fail and What to Do About It. And at that time, we talked briefly about how healthcare is kind of the elephant in the room, uh, whatever metaphor you choose. And it was unavoidable. And reading the introduction to this book reminded me of waking up after COVID lockdowns and thinking, shoot, I haven't been to the dentist in three years. I don't want to go, but I really have to. Uh, talk about your background and your co-author and a little antidote about you know how this book came to be. Yeah, so my, I'm a professor of economics at MIT, and my co-author, Laurent Inav, is a professor of economics at Stanford. And uh, for our careers to date, uh, we've been doing what academics typically do, which is write narrow, technical, wonky, jargon-filled, impenetrable articles. Uh, but they've been primarily, well, they've been almost exclusively on insurance and particularly on U.S. health insurance and healthcare policy. Um, and as I said, the individual articles were narrow, technical, and wonky, but the the broader goal and, and the motivation for me for, for studying economics in general and healthcare in particular is to try to understand how government policy can improve uh, people's lives and also how sometimes it can get it very wrong. Um, and so, you know, it's natural given that we were health economists for people to ask us, oh, so what do you think of, you know, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan or, or a health savings account proposal coming out of, you know, the Republican administration? Or what should we do to fix uh, U.S. health insurance? And I've always answered truthfully that I don't know. That's why I study the topic. You know, uh, if I thought I knew the answer, it would be, that would be exciting, but it would be a very boring thing to do research on. You do research on things that you don't understand or don't know how to fix. Um, 
And so that's always been my answer. And, and then the origin story of this book, however, is that, well, I guess it was now four years ago in the summer of 2019, as the uh, Democratic primaries were getting underway for the 2020 election, uh, my father-in-law, Mark, asked me this question. So what do you think of the various candidates' plans? And I gave the typical answer. And he said, okay, so what do you think we should do to fix U.S. health insurance coverage? And I answered, honestly, I don't know. That's why I study it. And I thought that would be the end of it. It usually is. Uh, But my father-in-law is is persistent. uh, And he came back to me a few days later and, and very, you know, kindly, but but persistently said, come on, Amy, you've been studying this topic for 20 years. You must be one of the world's experts on U.S. health insurance. So he's a little overly generous, but you can forgive him his you know starry-eyed attitude towards his daughter-in-law. And then he said to me, are you really telling me you have nothing to say about how to improve U.S. health insurance policy? Seriously? And and I kind of thought he had a point. Uh, I was like, oof, you know, when you put it that way, it sounds uh, a little pathetic. Uh, and I mentioned it to my co-author, Laurent. We talk almost daily because we work together so much. And he's even more like, let's stick to the straight and narrow, what are the numbers in table two say and nothing more than I am. And he, he said, yeah, he's right. And so this book honestly began, we discussed this in the prologue and many people have said, no, 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 come on, what's the true origin story? And I was like, no, no, that's really it. It began as an attempt, we didn't think we'd actually answer the question, but maybe provide a framework for thinking about different policies and what are the pros and cons of different approaches. Economists you know, specialize in trade-offs. There's no obvious solution. Everything has pros and cons and get a little clarity for ourselves and, and hopefully for, for my father-in-law. But then as we started really discussing it in earnest and, and thinking and reading and researching and doing a lot of arguing, it's great to have a co-author who rarely agrees with you because uh, it pushes back against you know your initial instincts. Um, we kind of realized that in fact, the answer was very simple. And once we realized that and we were kind of, we were excited, we wanted to share it not just with my father-in-law, but actually with a much broader audience to hopefully actually influence the policy discussion and hopefully ultimately U.S. health policy. So that's the origin story of the book. And we're very excited about how, you know, what we've figured out and we hope others will be too. Yeah. And I love that because um, I'm not letting you off the call without playing the expert in the family game like we did last time, because that's the origin story. And I also hope you appreciate how I worked uh, dentistry into that uh, opening. Uh, As listeners go back and read the first book, they'll hopefully appreciate how layered that was. So this is a big bite. This topic is the biggest bite. And reading it made me long for the gentler times of talking about pet insurance. But I think you did do what you set out to do, really. But what I grew to love about this book is it reads like a textbook example of one of my favorite topics, Edward de Bono's lateral thinking. And your description of the patchwork of add-ons the last 50 to 75 years is textbook vertical thinking, right? Just incrementalism. You don't like this stack of blocks. You take one off, you add two more, you take off the red one, you put on a green one, and you never get what the solution should look like if you were able to start from scratch with a blank page. And the real challenge of lateral thinking, in my understanding, is it's almost impossible for someone to do blank page creative thinking when they've been inside the box for 25 years, right? And that's 
in a way, your gift is you, you guys knew a lot about insurance, right? And you'd looked at this, but you were really in a way coming at it from the outside. Did you run into folks as you were going through this where you were starting to see the story evolve and you're talking to people that have been in that box in this industry for 25, 30 years, and it's kind of getting obvious to you, but they just can't grasp it. You know what I mean? They're just like, but no, 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 this is, this is the way we always do that. Or another exercise in creative thinking is to say, you have to believe, you have to ignore costs, you have to ignore technological feasibility. What would this look like if, and from only from there, can you uh, get the right uh, answer? I mean, you talk to a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think one thing that was, well, helpful for us, you know, uh, whether it was helpful for the book, you can decide for yourself, is that we have never, either of us before, been involved, as many economists are, in active public policy debates or, or implementation of public policy. And so as a result, we decided, you know, from the get-go that we were not going to consider political feasibility until the epilogue, where we do talk about it. Um, we were, of course, going to consider economic feasibility. We're economists, after all. But but I think that so many discussions for people who are actually working in this space start with, what can we get through the current Congress, or you know, get you know a presidential candidate you know to get support behind, and that's obviously incredibly important. But it has to come in our minds at the end, not at the beginning, that we have to start by defining the ideal. And uh, only then, when we have that sort of North Star, can we either, you know, try and figure out how to, you know, not we, but people more skilled than us, how can we make that work politically? Or if we need to compromise, as inevitably can happen, which, which compromises are really first order for for uh you know that would really be lethal to to the proposal and which are kind of eh, minor and so only by understanding where we want to be can we start to then discuss well how could we possibly get there and so given that so many of the health policy discussions that we'd heard start with well x is off the table or y will never pass we thought well maybe there's going to be an you know there's going to be an obvious answer that everyone agrees on that's kind of the subtext and then they're all just talking about what's politically feasible and we were pretty surprised to pretty quickly realize as we read more as into you know how this issue is discussed that in fact no but there wasn't even agreement on the or discussion even of the ideal solution. And partly it's because nobody was starting with the question that our training as economists tells us is where you have to start any discussion of a solution is what is the objective? What is the goal? What is the problem we're trying to solve? And and I think a lot of the public policy debates and discussions talk past each other, not only because, you know, because they're not grappling with what is the point of U.S. healthcare policy? Now, that may sound like a, an idiotic question because there are many possible reasons the government could be involved in, in health policy, and, and they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, we talk about in the book, you know, one is that the sort of cartoon version of uh, economics in which Adam Smith's invisible hand magically equates supply and demand almost surely doesn't work in medical marketplaces. And so, 
you know, there's a reason the government's involved and to try and make those markets work. There are other people who think the government should be involved to try and improve population health or uh, reduce uh, health disparities. So there are many possible and many good reasons uh, to be involved. But unless we sort of articulate what we think is the key purpose, quickly we're going to get very confused on what is and is not essential in the solution. And much to our surprise when we took this, as you said, lateral approach or stepped back and said, you know, what is the goal of U.S. health policy? And we looked at both what the current, you know, situation on the ground is with U.S. health policy and also read a lot about uh, the, the history of U.S. medicine and U.S. healthcare policy going back centuries. Uh, something that we had not really been focusing on, and I think most of the economics profession had not been focusing on, became immediately and startlingly apparent, which is it's been very clear looking at our current policy and our history that we have made a commitment as a society to provide access to essential medical care regardless of resources, and that if people do not have the financial resources to fund uh, essential medical care when they are ill, we as a government and society inevitably step in with public programs and public financing for that care. Now, I realize that may sound like a crazy assertion, given that we are, of course, the only high-income country that has not enacted universal health insurance coverage, and we have a famously, you know, lift oneself up by one's bootstrap, frontier spirit, independence. And so we clearly haven't achieved uh, this goal. But as we spend a fair amount of time discussing in the book, if you look at our at the history of healthcare policies, policy patches, as you were, that have been enacted, it's very clear that this is what we have been trying, if failing to accomplish. And we go through sort of numerous examples in the book to make that point. Social norms, professional obligations. And I, I, we're going to get to the regulatory nature of emergency rooms. That's been something I've been fascinated uh, by for a while. So yeah, you take this mosaic, it may not have been explicit as you're describing in your discussions with people, but the evidence is clearly there that this is what we've, we've got a social contract uh, we've agreed to. So let's figure it out. And we could talk for four hours by itself about how the system has worked historically, the 75 years of patchwork, how it works today. Uh, I'd really just want to get into some of your recommendations and fixes, because that's the that's the juice. But most people of of a certain age who have lived through this, who have lived through it with their parents, can imagine what you're talking about and and what how how insurance started and how we just keep adding on, adding on to fill in those those gaps, which is a a, a meaningful word in this uh, um, uh, discussion. But it, another topic which I found interesting is, you know, in, in economics, I was a student a hundred years ago, you know, you kind of grew up in the, in the 80s being told that, you know, it's different than life sciences where you have a laboratory and you can test things. Uh, it's tough to build models when you can't test on a macro scale in the real world. But you had all these other countries to draw from that seemingly have tried every per, uh, permutation of universal coverage, basic coverage, single payer systems, patient contributions, I just want to start with one, and, and also at the state level within the United States, Massachusetts and Oregon. In particular, what, what happened in Oregon and, and what did we learn from it? Oregon comes up in two different places in our book, in, in two different contexts. Let me talk about the one that is probably more important and behind your question, which is okay. um, 
the state of Oregon ran a uh, health insurance lottery in 2008. Um, so literally, uh, they had money to provide Medicaid coverage, that's public health insurance for low-income individuals, to some low-income individuals, but not everyone. And they decided that the fairest way to allocate a limited number of spots was to run a lottery. They asked interested people to sign up and then they drew names. Uh, you know, Stephen Colbert had a field day with this and it's a rather absurd situation, but it did allow um, myself and a number of co-authors to, you know, you talk about, you know, in the 80s, you felt economics was not a science. And I think there's been enormous prog progress in economics as a science, thanks in large part to both increased availability of computing power, rich data, and uh, empirical techniques, one of which that has been, you know, taking over in economics is using randomized controlled trials, the, right. the exact same approach that the Food and Drug Administration uses to decide if a new drug is safe and effective. You randomly give it to some patients and not others and look and see what happens. That's increasingly being done in economics to study the impacts of social policy. Now, I don't think the state of Oregon was had research in mind when it designed its lottery. In fact, I know it didn't. It was doing it for the purposes of uh, fairly allocating a limited number of slots. They decided chance was the fairest way to do it. But for myself and my, and my co-authors, uh, this was an invaluable research opportunity to learn what is the impact of covering the low-income uninsured with health insurance. And we learned, you know, two sets of things. One, that formal health insurance really has meaningful benefits being covered by Medicaid compared to being uninsured. Uh, people were much better protected financially against uh, uh, unpaid medical bills or out-of-pocket medical costs. Uh, they also used more medical care across the board, primary care, prescription drugs, hospital care, even the emergency room, which I know you want to get to. Um, and on some measures, they had better uh, health, in particular that we found dramatic reductions in um, uh, rates of depression when we screened people who won and lost the lottery for, for depression. Um, so that's the, you know, uh, perhaps not surprising, uh, formal health insurance has benefits part of the equation. I think the part that was even more striking to, and influenced us in this book is the fact that when you looked at the experience of the uninsured and compared it to what happened if they got insurance, we discovered that no one was actually uninsured in the sense of literally uninsured. What would it mean to be actually uninsured when it comes to your health care? It would mean that the only medical care you would get is medical care that you pay for yourself. But in point of fact, the results from the Oregon experiment told us that people who were uninsured were getting about four-fifths as much medical care as they would get if they won the lottery and got insurance. And that was, again, across the board. They were getting not just hospital and emergency room care, but but some primary care and preventive care. Right. It wasn't zero. Exactly. It wasn't zero. But here's the most important part. Part They were also not paying for most of that care. They were paying for only about 20 cents on the dollar of the care they were getting. Other people have looked at this. We were just looking in Oregon in, in national surveys and, and found similar results that the uninsured pay for only about 20 to 30 cents on the dollar of the medical care they receive. And the rest is paid for by this patchwork of 
public policies and public programs that provide funding for clinics and public hospitals and nonprofit hospitals to provide health care to the low income uninsured or underinsured and provide, you know, requirements as well as funding that they provide that care. And so that was, you know, part of the modern evidence of, yeah, we really do have this social contract that we're not going to, if someone shows up without insurance and lacking resources, but very ill, we're not going to just say, sorry, too bad. Um, but that's also why you see, and you see this across the political spectrum, support for universal coverage, not um, not simply as a progressive, you know, let's help, let's help people who are unfortunate. Uh, in an unfortunate situation type, you know, policy, but actually from a large number of conservatives who also have recognized, and you can think of, you know, Charles Murray, Mitt Romney, Frederick Hayek, you know, everyone on both the practical and the intellectual side, who says, look, if ultimately, inevitably, we are as a society going to put policies in place and funding in place to, pro to provide care to people who fall ill and can't afford it, it makes much more sense to formalize that commitment up front, fund it through the tax system, define it, and tell people that they have this as opposed and to- do it efficiently. Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to just cobbling it together in the back end. Yeah. And and so chapter six, why universal health insurance is the only answer. Let's revisit a couple terms for listeners in case they're not familiar and they only know our system. The difference between universal coverage and single payer, which I think is kind of the UK and Canada model, you're very clear up front to say we're not recommending a single payer model. You're keep you're keeping insurance companies in the mix, which I'm having read the last book and talked to you, I'm like, well, what, what is she doing? Well, I thought insurance markets were, were broken. It, are you doing that purely, not purely, but in part because you know a single payer system is infeasible and you would just, people would stop listening to you right there. Or is that really not the right way uh, to do it? You, you like the universal coverage. You like having an intermediary uh, in, in some percentage of the distribution of healthcare services uh, through an insurance model. Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah, the question makes sense. And let me try and clarify, we're not for single payer. We're also not against single payer. Again, what we come from is the perspective of there's this clear empirical social contract to provide essential medical care to everyone. That we think makes it very clear that we, and as I said, this is not a particularly new idea. It's been embraced across the political spectrum. We have to formalize and fund that commitment upfront through universal automatic basic coverage. Beyond that, there are a number of ways to provide that automatic universal basic coverage. You can have a single payer model, such as uh, the British National Health Service, or for example, the Veterans Administration right here in the United States, whose model for providing health insurance to veterans is very similar to the British National Health Service. You can do it through um, a set of competing private insurers, which is how um, you know, the Netherlands and Switzerland, for example, do it. Or you can do it through, you know, a mix of both private and public, uh, you know, which is, for example, how Australia does it. And, and there are definite pros and definite cons to each of those. But our point is that that's a separate that that how how you implement the payer form of the universal coverage is a separate question than first agreeing that we need to have automatic universal coverage and then i would say so and again it, this could be you know you can have private insurers you can have a public insurer you can have both the one thing we do 
say is that, you know, we need this automatic universal basic coverage be to, to be, as you said, a much more efficient way of fulfilling what we've essentially committed to doing anyway. But beyond that, uh, people should be allowed to purchase supplemental coverage for anything that's not considered so essential that it's in the basic coverage in a hopefully well-designed and well-functioning market. And so we spend some time talking about that. But that's something that occurs even in quote-unquote single-payer system. So, so the UK, for example, allows people to buy private coverage. In fact, the only uh, supplemental coverage, uh, the only places that don't are, uh, that allow sort of supplemental coverage are uh, North Korea, Cuba, and a few <laughs> Canadian provinces. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you, you've, you've opened the, the, the door. Let's get into uh, the recommendations and the basic summary of what universal coverage means and how you envision it working and how it gets paid for. So for starters, you're talking about basic coverage for all. And so the story you were just telling about Oregon reminded me that the the basic coverage you envision is kind of like a barbell, right? You've got at the one end, you've got your preventative care, basic stuff uh, that, ha that comes up once in a while that you expect everyone to be able to take care of without going bankrupt. But then also on the other end of the barbell, you have those chronic diseases where the bills are going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars and they couldn't pay for that either. Do I, do I have the, the basic description close? Yeah. So I think there's four key elements of this. It's that it's first universal, which we talked about. Second, that that coverage has to be automatic. Um, and that's because the experience in the U.S. is that, you know, simply making people eligible for coverage uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that they're covered. There's a startling statistic that about six in 10 of people who are currently uninsured in the United States are actually eligible for free or heavily, heavily discounted health insurance coverage. Uh, but they, again, because we have a complicated series of different programs where you qualify for this program if you're sufficiently low income or this program based on your age or this other program based on your disease or health status, people don't realize which program they're eligible for or they're unable to provide all the documentation and fill out all the forms to demonstrate their eligibility or, and this happens a lot, they enroll in a program, but then because each program is tailored for a specific set of circumstances, they usually have to, you know, every year or so show that they still meet those circumstances and they may not realize they need to do that or they may fall off, you know, may not uh, uh, be able to, to assemble the, the documentation again until they fall off the program. So that's why it has to be automatic, right? Yeah. So that's universal automatic. And then the two other components are basic and free. So you were asking about the basic and about what what is included and what isn't included. And, you know, at a, at a very high level or basic level, as it were, you know, anything that's considered essential medical care needs to be included. So, so you're right. That includes not only the care for the chronically ill that we end up effectively you know, or ineffectively, as it were, but in practice, providing uh, to people regardless of resources, but also uh, basic primary and preventive care, which is which is quite cheap. I mean, about five percent of healthcare spending by the currently insured is on primary right. care, and we're not arguing that it's going to save money to cover primary care. It may or may not. 
we just more argue that it that it, it it kind of makes basic sense that if you the example we give in the book is if you if you've decided as a, you have a commitment, you know, to send out uh, the Coast Guard to rescue any ship that's sinking. So that's, you know, like our commitment to help people when they're ill and unable to provide care, uh, unable to afford care. Then it seems nuts, you know, to use a technical term, to, to not, uh, <laughs> right, to not like put life jackets on that boat and, you know, check to make sure it's not leaking before you let it go out to sea, right? So, right. so, so that's, but on the other hand, it would be quite basic relative to what many uh, privately insured and people currently with Medicare have on, I think, three important dimensions. Uh, first, there's a host of things that are nice to have in healthcare, but that are not essential for actual the medical purpose of that healthcare. And we refer to those as amenities. And in many universal coverage systems, a lot of what you purchase with your supplemental coverage are better amenities. So we talk about the Australian system or the Singapore system in which the supplemental private coverage can get you, you know, access to a private hospital room, uh, air conditioning, you know, better food than the usual hospital slop, etc. That's a natural thing to include in, in supplemental. The second is some amount of uh, gatekeeping or care, or care coordination by the insurer to make sure that you know there's you're not simply getting every time you have a headache and you want an MRI and the doctor is willing to order it uh, you you can go ahead and get it now that that's done currently in a lot of private insurance plans but it's not done in the in the Medicare program for the elderly and that's partly why those uh, costs are ballooning and then the third and probably least palatable to many part of basic being really basic is that the wait times for non-urgent care would be longer than what people uh, who currently have private health insurance or Medicare coverage for the elderly have come to expect. We anticipate that they would be similar to the somewhat longer wait times uh, that have been documented in for people, the one in five Americans who have public health insurance through the Medicaid program for low-income individuals. I'd note that those wait times, although they are longer, are what Congress has considered reasonable for the Veterans Administration mm. for the for, for veterans, and they're 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 not unlike what occurs in many other uh, universal coverage systems, and and those types of things, the you know longer wait times, fewer amenities, and less freedom to get any test you want whenever you want, are also what's going to keep the cost down. Right. It's why we think a lot of people would, about two thirds of the Americans we estimate would purchase supplemental coverage. But I do want to ask, emphasize that if you're one of the you know, 150 million Americans who are fortunate enough to have private health insurance through your employer right now, while you probably would want to supplement, basic coverage would in two very important respects be better than what you have now. First, there'd be no risk that you might lose that coverage. Uh, if you lose your lose your job, change your job, want to retire, etc. It, it's kind of absurd to us that health insurance, which is an economic product designed to provide uh, some form of economic security and certainty is itself highly uncertain. So we discuss in the book that although most attention focuses on the one in 10 Americans under 65 who are uninsured at any moment in time, a much larger share of Americans, in fact, one in four Americans, will spend some substantial period of time without health insurance coverage over a two-year period. So 
that would be a risk that went away. And the other thing that basic coverage uh, would have, and this gets to the last of the universal automatic basic and free points, is that there would be absolutely no patient payments Co-pays, for any yeah. care. Yeah. yeah, any care covered in basic coverage. And again, that's because we find that many people who are who are fortunate enough to be insured and to keep their insurance, even if they fall ill, still face extremely large uh, medical bills that they have to pay for their so-called covered care. That's because of the trend to high deductibles, for example, in employer-provided health insurance, or that the Medicare coverage builds in deliberately that people have to pay one in five dollars of every physician bill uncapped so that if you are unfortunate enough to fall really ill and need, for example, uh, expensive oncology services for to treat your cancer, you can face tens of thousands of dollars in medical bills that you have to pay despite having Medicare coverage. And that is not that's backwards from the perspective of insurance. Insurance is supposed to provide economic security. That means it can't expose you to risk of catastrophic bills and it has to be secure. You can't be constantly at risk of losing it. Right. Yeah, I think of the the minimum insurance coverage for anything would be some catastrophic policy, by definition, which means you're 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 avoiding catastrophe, financial catastrophe through that uh, policy. And yeah, that that is the most interesting part: be, uh, the uh, not nickeling, diming patients uh, to death. It's contrary to I think what was the Bible for a long time was the Rand study you refer to. It's also contrary to what. Most people who are not economists would just assume, well, if you charge them a little bit, they'll they'll use less. And that's part of keeping the cost down. But then you have, it's, it's mind-numbing to think about folks t- spending the money and time to send out a bill. The cost of sending out the bill is greater than what you're trying to collect and things like that. So again, efficiency is is the key to making this, one of the main keys to making this work. Yeah, and that's that is really, you know, that's the part of the book where we come as close as I think is possible to committing professional heresy or maybe professional suicide, in which it is true that we have done some of this work ourselves and lectured generations of students that it is incontrovertible that if you if people have to pay less for their medical care, if they don't have some financial skin in the game, they will use more medical care. And so that's why uh, generations of economists have have argued that we should have patients pay at least a little bit. You know, you called it nickel and diming, but the, the flip side is maybe they'll think twice before they rush to the doctor every time they sneeze or demand an MRI every time they have a headache. And it's kind of, it was kind of sobering, despite having done a lot of the work showing that that is correct, that people will be more judicious in their use of medical care when they have to pay a little bit for it, that we come out in the book and say, we take it back in the sense of we no longer recommend that people have this kind of financial skin in the game, at least when it comes to their basic coverage. And the reason is is, is is very practical, as you were saying. It's because we looked at what happened around the world over the last several decades as many high-income countries followed the advice of professional economists such as myself and introduced or increased these copays in their basic coverage plan uh, with the idea of trying to reduce healthcare spending. And what we found, it was really quite striking that almost simultaneously, on the one hand, they introduced these copays, and on the other hand, they introduced the exemptions and the exceptions. So for example, right. in with the British National Health Service, you know, they tried to 
bring down healthcare costs by introducing co-pays for vision, dental, prescription drugs. They also have exceptions. You know, you don't have to pay your co-pay for prescription drugs if you're old enough or young enough or poor enough right. or have a certain disease or are a veteran or are a student. The list goes on and on. And the end result is they've recreated the crazy patchwork of American health insurance coverage programs, you know, writ small for, for prescription copays. At the end of the day, 90% of prescriptions in the UK are dispensed to people who are exempted from these co-pays. So you're exactly right. They don't accomplish anything, not because the economics was wrong, that if people have to pay something, they'll use uh, less medical care, but because they don't have to pay something in 90% of the cases. And all you get is a lot of additional hassles for the patient who has to make sure they know how to get qualified for the program that gives them the exemption, for the government that has to check and make sure that they filled out the right paperwork for that exemption, and very little cost savings because 90% are exempt. Yeah. And those stories are mind-numbing and frustrating. And the related story you referred to earlier about programs where you some family member has to fill out and refill paperwork quarterly or annually and, and just doesn't get it done, doesn't know they have to get it done, doesn't do it right and, and loses coverage is also like, this is, can't be the right way to do it. So uh, they all have something in common in that regard. One one question about basic, I apologize, in your list of four, I don't know that this came up, is uh, you want to carve out basic from being eligible for a premium upgrade. That's That's proven to be um, a mistake. I don't know. I can't, we'll get to Australia. Australia is a funky story for me, but uh, do I, I have that right? Like you, you don't want them to be able to uh, buy premium coverage for basic just to jump the line or see what doctor no, they no, want no. to see. No, we're, we're, we are, we actually, that's one of the things that supplemental coverage in Australia and in other countries can and does buy, which, you know, sometimes pejoratively referred to as Q jumping. Okay. Um, that's one of the things supplement, in addition to, you know, a private hospital room or greater flexibility um, of, uh, you know, getting a procedure you want uh it's also it, one of the things that supplemental insurance often buys is, is shorter wait times, say for a hip replacement or something that's not urgent in the sense of medically urgent, but obviously if you need a hip replacement, you'd like to have it sooner than later. And there um, we make two points. One is we do want you to be able to actually supplement, i.e. not have to repay for what your taxpayer dollars have already paid for in terms of the basic coverage. Okay. And there we give the example, you know, so the UK does not do it this way. And we think that this is not the right way to do it. So there, for example, if you need a cataract surgery in the UK, the National Health Service will pay for the physician, the operating room, and the implantation of a basic lens. But suppose you want a special higher end lens, you can't just pay the additional cost for the, you know, the extra few hundred pounds to get that, you know, higher end lens. You actually have to go and repurchase out of your own money uh, the physician services and the cost of the basic lens oh, that okay. the National Health Service would otherwise have paid for. So there we want you to literally be able to supplement. But the big concern is the one I think you were alluding to, which is if you do allow, as we would, people to use supplemental coverage to jump the queue to get 
the doctor they want when they want it, there's a real concern that that can erode the adequacy of the basic coverage, you know, that either from a political perspective, uh, there's not a sufficient will to fund the basic system so that wait times are reasonable, or, you know, the a lot of doctors will just prefer to practice in the supplemental market where they can, uh, you know, presumably get more money. And that's a real risk. What we've seen happen in a lot of Latin American countries is exactly that, where the this the supposedly basic system has just eroded to the point where it's really not providing essential the essential medical care it needs to be providing. And, and anyone who can possibly afford to is, is going to go outside that system. But it's not an inevitable risk. And as we talk about in the book, there are many countries around the world, you mentioned Australia is one, we talk about Israel as well, that have struggled with this issue and found ways to make sure that they can preserve the adequacy of the basic system. And so it's not particularly glamorous work. Um, It's fairly prosaic, you know, keep being vigilant, keeping an eye on wait times. And if they get too long, uh, doing things to make sure that the basic system remains adequate, such as increasing funding for it, putting various regulations or financial incentives in place to make sure that doctors will practice in both systems. And in many countries that has seemed to work, you know, quite well. And that was the funkiest part of that chapter beyond basic was that in Australia, I believe the doctors can choose. I'm going to provide for basic, I'm going to provide for supplemental, or I might do both. And I thought, yeah, man, that fact, seems fraught. But Yeah, yeah no, in, in Australia and in many other countries, most physicians practice in both systems. And often, you know, in the case of, uh, of Israel, for example, and in the UK, they've put substantial financial incentives in place to make sure that it's very worth a doctor's time to practice partly in the basic system and not go completely outside of it into the supplemental market. And again, it's a way of trying to ensure the adequacy of the of the basic system. And that's a great lead into wanting to talk about some of those other countries again that may be closest to the whole for us to look at. I think Switzerland is one and then I can't remember if the others, the, the Netherlands or, or Singapore, but uh, what countries out there are, are kind of closest to what you're talking about already, even if not perfectly so? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I'd say that at a at a very high level, you know, as I said, we we didn't go. We didn't. Another way you could have done this exercise, and other people have done this, is to say, let's look at all the. Uh, systems we have around the world and decide which we like best. We decided instead to, you know, start from first principles and say, absent any political constraints, what's the, how would we design an ideal system? But having done that, we were both struck and to be honest, a little bit uh, sheepish or humble to realize that at a high level, what we come up with is in fact some version of what every other high income country has, right? Universal automatic coverage uh, that's basic and with a budget, right? right? And then the ability to supplement. Right. So, but then once you get into the, our particular version of that, you'll find that, you know, we didn't sort of, we haven't imported any given country system, you know, lock, stock and barrel. So on the one hand, we're quite similar 
to the to the UK and Canada in saying that anything provided by the basic coverage needs to be completely free and um, and patients shouldn't have to pay anything. That's very different from countries like the Netherlands or Switzerland. On the other hand, um, we feel very strongly, as I said, that people should be able to supplement just incrementally on top of the basic system, which is much more like what the, you know, Singapore, Australia has and very different from what uh, the UK allows. So at a high level, every other country got it right. Once you get into the details, no country got it exactly right. Yeah, they they had the right goals and and the execution is a little different here and there. Um, And there's quotes in here. We talked about earlier and I, I skipped over it. Why first principles, right? This, this because of social norms, professional obligations. Um, we're already trying to do this. We're just doing it wildly inefficiently. You know, as, uh, you have a Robert Moffat quote in there about it's just inefficient and unfair, and you're trying to fix the inefficiency. But you, you emphasize don't be don't confuse this with equality. That's not not an outcome of uh, providing universal coverage. Right. I mean, if certainly there are, there is, you know, there are people who would go further and say, you know, uh, inequality of any form is abhorrent and inequality in health in particular, you know, health occupies the sort of sacred space in the moral firmament. And how can we possibly embrace a two-tiered system in which people who have uh, more income are able to buy, you know, more access to care? And we have a whole chapter in the book discussing it. And we, we make several points. First, you know, we think that what's been revealed to be our social commitment is up to a standard of adequacy, not equality. And I think we see that in many aspects of public policy. So we have publicly funded education, but we don't uh, preclude people who want and can afford it from purchasing, whether it's private tutoring services or actually a private, you know, schooling experience. Similarly, you know, take, take basic safety. We have publicly funded police whose job is to try and, you know, provide basic safety and protection, but many people will purchase a, you know, home alarm system or a security camera for their business on top of that. Right. Legal defense. If you don't, can't afford a lawyer, one will be provided to you, but you can go, go hire Johnny Cochran if you want, you know, that's your call. Exactly. And, and then, you know, our point is to the extent that you may be, and we certainly, you know, are sympathetic to concerned about the high levels of income inequality in the United States that allows some people to hire Johnny Cochran and others not. Um, the way to tackle that is is through a uh, higher income taxes on the rich, not through specific services like, you know, well, let's make sure everyone has, you know, gold-plated uh, healthcare coverage. And then the final point we talk about in the book is that for those people who are particularly concerned about health disparities that say, you know, it's one thing to say people purchase different levels of housing or even legal services, but health is different. I mean, what's more important than your health? How can we build in inequality in health? And they point correctly to these very disturbing statistics about the dramatic health inequality in the United States that there's a difference in life expectancy at age 40 of like 15 years between Crazy. someone in the top 1% and bottom 1% of the income distribution. There, as as counterintuitive as it may be to hear, if you want to do something to address these 
dramatic and disturbing health disparities with across individuals in the United States, health insurance policy is actually not the lever you should be leaning on. And there's a there's a large body of, of empirical evidence uh, pointing to the you know really important roles of non-medical factors in driving these health disparities. These include both aspects of individual health behavior, like the air they uh, the, sorry the uh, the food they eat, the uh, cigarettes they do or do not smoke, the exercise they do or do not get, as well as external factors that they're exposed to, such as air pollution, gun violence, traffic accidents. All of these things are potentially uh, addressable through public policies, such as you know, cigarette taxes, soda taxes, pollution regulation. So it's not that we throw up our hands and say there's nothing that can be done to improve population health or reduce uh, health inequality, but they're not about medical care or the access to medical care that health insurance can provide. And perhaps the most striking demonstration of this comes once again from evidence from other countries. There's really fascinating work showing that if you look in uh, Northern European countries like Norway or Sweden, which not only have universal health insurance, but have a cradle to the grave social safety net that's much, much more extensive than we have in the United States, even in those countries, if you look at the differences in life expectancy across the income distribution between rich and poor, those differences are as large in these Northern European, Scandinavian countries with universal health insurance. That's crazy, but as they are in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Wow, what a perfect example. Um, that's that's incredible. The I'm going to skip over the emergency room discussion, which is basically just that you can't be denied because you don't have health insurance. They don't have to cure your cancer, but they have to stabilize you. So instead, I'm going to jump to my uh, my expert in the family uh, game with three questions. One is, since you talked about committing economic heresy, joked about it earlier, what about the classic market solution I, I used to hear about, which is taxpayer-funded health savings account? account. So it's kind of your funding. It's kind of the same thing to me. Like you, you might spend $4,000 a year on, on basic coverage. Now you, in, in the universal model with free basic, you would uh, not have to pay anything. And, and this is still better than nickel and diming people. But what about if you, those HSAs where you just funded it for them and then they go out, and this is the, the libertarian model. They, they go out and then shop and that keeps costs down. Yeah. There, there's not, there's nothing in our proposal that that uh, prevents shopping, as Trying it were, it, yep. for, for in, in in the basic. You know, so many countries. Israel's one example. Uh, you can get your basic coverage from a number of insurers. The key is that we want to make sure that everyone has to have it, and it has to cover the essential things. Otherwise, suppose, you know, you mentioned catastrophic coverage. Suppose someone says, well, I'd like to use my hard-earned dollars to buy a, a plan that only provides catastrophic coverage. And, right. you know, that'll be cheaper, right? And I'll spend, and with the money I save, I have a $3,000 deductible. And with the money I save, I'll, I'll you know, be able to uh, afford some uh, nicer housing. The problem is that if they end up sick, and unable to pay for the care that is in their deductible, we're going to inevitably do something. And that's why e even libertarians like Charles Murray, who want to completely dismantle the bureaucratic state and favors a universal basic income of $13,000 a year as, you know, let's give everyone back their money and get the government out of their lives. His one exception is for mandatory health insurance coverage. He'd take $3,000 out of that 
13,000 UBI and use it for mandatory health insurance because otherwise, if someone chooses to spend their money on something else and ends up sick and unable to pay for the care, inevitably, we, we're going to do it. It's a cost, yeah. Number two, employer paid health care. Does that, does that continue? Uh, again, it, it could. It um, could. doesn't have to, right. but it could. No, but countries like Germany, they have their universal basic coverage mostly administered through employers with separate programs for the for the uh, unemployed. Um, it's not obvious to me why the employer should double as your uh, insurer. And we talk in the book about how that arose as a bit of a historical accident. But if you know people want it that way, or it's easier from a transition point of view to maintain that the employer as a major source of coverage, we have no problem with that. People could you know supplement through their employer if they want it. Again, as long as the basic coverage is automatic, regardless of what they choose to do. Got it. Well, this has been great. Now I'm going to turn it over to you because this is such an enormous topic. It's so important. I really think you you have something here. And it's because of the way you came in from the outside with insurance expertise, but not necessarily biased or in, in that institutional bias of 30 years in healthcare. You were able to think freely about starting from scratch, blank piece of paper. What should this look like? And I think you've nailed it. But I'm turning it over to you to, to close whatever you want to talk about what I didn't ask about. And I left a lot on the table, but most of it's interesting to me. You've been living this now for years. What should I have asked and what should we have talked about that I, I failed to bring up? I mean, no, I think you hit the highlights and thank you for those compliments. I almost think we should just end on that. But the one, <laughs> the, the one thing I will just reemphasize, because I do think it's very important, is I think that our, our concern is that people may hear, you know, universal coverage and think that this is a liberal or progressive idea. And I just want to emphasize again that not only do we not think of it as such, but I think if you look at other uh, thought leaders and public policy officials, it's very clear that there is a consensus that extends throughout the political spectrum from left to right that both that we clearly have this empirical social commitment to come in when people are ill and provide care. And that therefore, if we're going to inevitably do that, we might as well do it efficiently by formalizing and defining that commitment and funding it upfront. And so I just want to, you know, end with that, you know, there are many excellent other insights, which people can read in the book, but that this idea that this should, this should, and I think will be a proposal that should appeal across the political spectrum, I think is very important. Yeah, if I would change any one thing, I would say you buried the lead on that one, you know, because yeah. you have examples. It When it comes to efficiency, that should resonate with both sides of the political spectrum, that you can provide more for the same or less money. And the, the other lead being that you clarify that you don't think the basic coverage part of your universal coverage program requires higher taxes. It's just exactly. uh, that's that's important for everyone to understand. Doctor, I can't thank you enough for your time. Once again, it was great seeing you. And the book is We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare. And I, I can't recommend it for everybody enough. I really loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.